0: So, David, have you ever seen a ghost? Have I seen a ghost? The short answer to that question is, I think I've seen a spirit. And I don't know that I'd call it a ghost. In other words, I don't know that what I saw with a good friend of mine, so this was a shared experience, I don't know that it was a specific person. I had more of the feeling that I was seeing, this is going to sound odd, an emotion or some kind of emotional reverberation expressed as a somewhat humanoid, somewhat transparent entity. How does that sound?
1: Well, I won't ask you to repeat that again five times backwards, but I have okay. to tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, And the reason I ask David about ghosts is because our first guest this evening is Dr. Suze Seebeck. And she actually has great wealth of experience in searching for ghosts. She's a ghost hunter, a certified ghost hunter, I guess. She's founder of something called the Ghost... Certified? I guess because she's the founder of the Ghost Buffalo Power Research Society, a member of Good Standing of Arizona Paranormal Investigations, and a lifetime (laughs) member of the International Ghost Hunter Society. That definitely makes you a certified ghost hunter in my book, right? I
0: I, want to say it makes you certifiable, but... Uh, That's not nice.
1: Great not insane nice. minds think alike, and yeah, she's yeah, a yeah. very charming lady,
0: and we don't want to do that. No, 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 and and you know, don't ever let me say that someone's kooky because of what they've seen or claimed have seen, because, man, I've seen some pretty darn weird stuff.
1: And we're going to get into that in future shows. But in the second half of the show, we're going to have Chris Rutkowski. He's co-author of a new book called The Canadian UFO Reports, The Best Cases Revealed. And he was trained in astronomy. And this is, ladies and gentlemen, going to be a very different approach. You've heard some very scientific people like Stanton Friedman, of course, and many of the people from UFON have joined us. You've also heard what we call in the business the crazy. Oh, yeah. And this guy is in the former list. He's someone with a lot of scientific information to offer on UFOs and some very exciting cases that he'll present to us this evening. And I think it's gonna be a good change of pace for us because we've explored so many oddball things on the show and we like to consider ourselves oddball ourselves that maybe we can get into a little sanity in the second half of the show and just see what we really know about UFOs and what's still up in the air That's no pun.
0: Of course, if it's you and me talking about it, then there's there's no sanity,
1: Gene. Yes. Insanity, what a concept. By the way, it's if you... Insanity. That too. Okay. If you have a question or comment about The Powercast, send your letters to news at com. news at com. Visit our website at theparacast.com. Two words together, no spaces for Powercast, and then .com. And we also have a message board there where it can get hot and heavy. More to come with a ghost hunter, a real ghost hunter, on the PowerCast.
2: I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
3: You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened. At the signpost up ahead, your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the podcast with Gene Steinberg and David
2: Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: So, Suze, I wanted to ask you this as the first question. How does one become a ghost hunter? Is this something you grew up with? I'm going to be a person who searched for ghosts and other paranormal events. How did this come about?
4: I started having paranormal events when I was uh, nine years of age and it sparked my interest. So I started seeing things that other people weren't seeing and uh, decided that I wanted to find out what I was seeing and then found a bunch of other people when I got into abnormal psychology that also was seeing different things that I was seeing and we all got together and formed a little club and started ghost hunting and that's where it's been ever since, back when I was about in my teens.
1: (laughs) Oh boy, so back when you were nine years old, what Uh exactly happen that just got your interest going in full gear?
4: My great-grandmother passed away, and the day that she passed away, my mother also was very intuitive, and she had told my mother that she wanted a sign, that she was going to give our family a sign, so she put a chair next to me in Louisiana in the funeral home with nobody sitting in it. And in the middle of summer with no air conditioning and only those hand fans that you use, the flowers blew up off of the casket, the spray of flowers, and one beautiful white rose came and sat right next to me on that chair. And it was like it was floating To actually come over to me. My mother and I both realized what was going on and then that night I saw my grandmother at the end of my bed and she was saying goodbye to me.
1: When you saw her, was this a full 3D image or a wisp? What were you looking at?
4: We saw just the rose that time uh, at the funeral home. Then my grandmother appeared to me in 3D in the end of my bed that night. This has happened to me in the past with other family members also, including my mother
1: she actually gave me a hug when she left that sounds familiar when my mother-in-law literally died in my wife's arms Uh she felt something a few minutes later going through her like this incredible sensation or pushing it could have been a hug i don't know yeah this is common
4: this is common and it's a, I think it's a release of energy. And then later on, the person who's grieving, um, you know, sometimes never even has a visit from their loved one until maybe six months later. And then they'll have an experience.
1: Mm. As a teenager, uh-huh. you got interested in this. And then when you went to school, what did you study to continue this pursuit?
4: Well, I went into abnormal psychology. And then I found a bunch of people that were into the paranormal and then I found out my professor was going to start a course in parascience. So then I started reading up and finding out that this actually is a scientific, you know, group and I wanted to join it since I did, I accelerated in, in earth sciences, biology, different things like that. So I went ahead and I joined it and started getting into everything from ESP you know, telepathy, telekinesis.
1: All right, so you looked at this when you were going to school as something that is a legitimate pursuit. What did your friends think, the ones who weren't into ghost hunting? They look at you and say, Suze, get real, get a real job, they, go out there and...
4: Exactly, and, yeah. Yeah, I got a lot of that, and I even got some flack uh, from the parental units. <laughs> and uh, I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and get my degree in abnormal psychology and minor in parascience. And they said, okay. So I've been a, a lifelong student of parascience um, since the wonderful age, probably I would say I'm 17 now. So I'm still taking courses in fact I'm taking now uh, I'm about to do the course through International Ghost Hunter Society which is the leading um, home study course on actual ghost investigations.
1: On the PowerCast we're talking to Dr. Sue Seebeck we just call her Suze or Dr. Suze. her nickname is the Hearst Whisperer I'm going to have to ask her what that means and to give you some <laughs> of her credentials she's founder of the Ghost Buffalo Power Research Society a member of good standing of the Arizona Paranormal Investigations the International Ghost Hunter Society Lifetime member and author of The Guests That Checked In But Never Out, El Tovar Hotel Ghost Stories and Grand Canyon Ghost Tales. Now, you're located near the Grand Canyon in Williams, Arizona. You actually have something called the New Saloon Row Ghost Tour. Now, do people really see ghosts on this trip or is this just kind of like a a fun tour to spend the afternoon?
4: We go into four certified haunted buildings that other groups, API and International Ghost Hunter Society, have gone in and investigated and have proven are legitimately haunted. And there are guests, if you check out our website at www.saloonrowghosttour.com, that actually have taken photos and have actually got anomalies along with apparitions on film.
1: Mm. Now, in general society, I think most of us who hear about ghosts think of the movie Ghostbusters, okay? Right. Right. So that, of course, was more comedy than serious movie or we see ghosts in the movies presented as some relative, perhaps coming back to deliver a message in our world, in the real world. What is a ghost? Is it truly always just a dead relative or a dead person in general who doesn't go all the oh. way to where they're supposed to go?
4: No, not at all. In fact, there are five reasons why there are a paranormal activity. The One, I'm sure everybody knows, is unfinished business, and it doesn't have to be a relative. You, If you're um, sensitive, as most of the world seems to be coming more and more in the last 20 years, if you ask, pretty much do a poll out of your radio, you'll find out that 60% of the people that are listening will actually have a ghost story or actually have some paranormal experience that they'd like to share with you. It's more so that way now in the last 20 years that we've been finding that more people believe in angels, more people have had an experience with a ghost. So... Unfinished business is the number one. Number two would be sudden death. You don't know you're dead. And it doesn't have to be a relative that people are actually having an experience with. Number three is somebody desecrates your grave or your memorial um, for the living. So, for instance, there is a gentleman who's buried up at the Grand Canyon between the Hopi House and the El Tabar in a cospice of trees, but he's actually in a parking lot. And many people see him walking around um, the area just because he's at he's not at rest. There's also suicide. People are afraid of judgment. The next one would be children. If you don't tell a child it's time to go to bed, eat your peas, or uh, do your homework, they're gonna continue doing what they do. And I don't like the term busking because I'm not about that at all. What I'm about is just making contact with them and letting them know that it's okay. You know, and that I'm not trying to bust them and send them to the light, because not everybody believes that anyway. So when a suicide situation comes about and you have a haunting, a real haunting from a suicide, it usually means that um, they're afraid of judgment because of what the world has
1: perceived to them. Is this a way then of just not fulfilling whatever their destiny is? Well, well, how is this universe formed then? Are we saying we live, we die, we go to this other place where we become a ghost and then maybe we go to heaven or hell, which maybe is part of our traditional religions. What's your perception of this layout in terms of the way life works?
4: I, my perception is that there's many, many different dimensions and that there is many splits of our energy. You want to call it a soul. You want to call it chi. You want to call it whatever you want. But I do not believe that while we're living in this plane, this reality, that our other reality could be taking place along with us that may be fulfilling what it is, lesson if you want to call it, is actually happening at the same time, but we need to be split in order to do it. So it may be that we all become energy and... You have choices. You have free will. That's one of the most important things that Creator, Spirit, God, you know, whoever you want to call it, gave us. And I think we have a choice when it comes to this life. We can either stay here, we can move on. You know, that's that's my belief system, and I never try to push it on anybody, but that's how I believe.
2: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Dr. Sue's, or Dr. Suze Seebeck, nicknamed the Hearse Whisperer. And she also has something called the New Saloon Row Ghost Tour. It's up in Williams, Arizona. And I say up because we're in the Phoenix Scottsdale area so at least for me that would be going north and if you go to saloonrowghosttour.com and we'll have the link over at the powercast.com website you can learn more about the tour and maybe if you go on the tour you'll see a ghost. Let's move into another aspect of this life cycle. Okay. So you're saying it's free will. You're dead and you can then decide either to come back and see what's going on, in which case you are a ghost or you could move on. Now, again, this point of free will, that means that you can control where you're going. Does that also mean you could reincarnate and come back here?
4: I myself believe yes. There's many that do not. But I've, I've been in many studies where I've met people that, you know, there's too many, uh, subjects that'll come to you and have, you know, maybe even sharing the same, what is this, a fantasy, a dream, a reality, whatever you want to call it, but they know they were here before. That I do not feel as though people I feel as though people are actually having a choice and I think that there are more people that can reincarnate on this, on this planet. I think they do. So what it comes down to is, yes, I believe in reincarnation.
1: So at this point, someone there can decide what's going on. But is there some other force or something that tells them what they can do? I imagine if you die, especially in a situation where the death is sudden, you didn't prepare for it. One second, you're alive. One second, you're dead. Who tells you? How do you know what your options are at that point?
4: That's a really good question. And the ones that I have talked to, the actual ghosts that I've communicated with, um, I will tell you that a lot of them say, I'm not dead. You know, that, that's one of the situations that you'll hear on uh, electronic voice phenomenon is when you ask them, when did you die or how did you die? And they'll say, I'm not dead and so and who calls the shots on that i believe we all have our own game plan before we even get here and everybody that you meet you meet for a reason uh... to help you on this path and you know deep down inside when you're not on that path because everything goes wrong but when you're on that path people just fall into your lap that help you and guide you along So, obviously, there has to be another power that I believe that is helping us, you know, maybe nurturing us along the way. That's, once again, that gets into man and and religion, and I believe in faith instead of religion. I think that the Almighty created faith, not religion. Man did that. So it's confusing when you get into religion and faith and all that, but I truly believe that we do have somebody else calling the shots, and I think that we get a choice. If you make a bad choice, you know what happens. You make a mistake, and you have to live with it.
1: Well, certainly, there are so many different religious views, but what about the person who maybe has no religion? Maybe he's agnostic, or maybe he has the religion of disbelief. Now he passes Perfect. to this other side. What happens to that person? Does he go down there? Is there a down there to go to?
4: Now, that's a good that's a good question. Also, um, the people that I've interviewed that have had an experience that are actually atheists and everything, who actually explain. In fact, Mr. Einstein himself was an atheist, and he created the camera. And one of the reasons he created Kodachrome and the camera was in order to do paranormal research. He's one of the first paranormal investigators. And he was an atheist, and he just wanted to know where the soul went and if you can make contact with it but many people who have had experiences that do not have any belief system set up whatsoever seem to mimic a lot of the of the let's say the crowd the rest of the followers whether they really don't believe in anything or not they will still have the same near-death experience you know you leave you go in a tunnel maybe nothing will be at the end of the tunnel for them but let's say if you're talking about judaism or buddhists or something It's a totally different experience for each person. Now, I think that obviously something's happening inside chemical, you know, makeup of the brain at the same time, you know, but how is it happening that everybody has the same experience? Do you see what I'm saying?
1: Well, are you believing here in a collective unconscious then? That we're all part of one whole? That's one other religious belief, that we are all part of the universe, and there's some kind exactly. at the fundamental level, there's a shared consciousness, so we just that, know. Exactly. Mm. Now, this may be another silly question, but I've got to ask it, okay? And that is, and I don't know, in terms of ghosts, I'll say this, I don't buy it yet, but I accept the fact that my wife had this odd experience to her when her mother died, so something may be going on. Here's an interesting question, and maybe it's a naive one, but I think a lot of people think about it. When we see ghosts in the movies... (laughs) on television, we seem to see a situation where if a person dies in a rather serene state, say that they're in bed, maybe they're in the hospital, but they look vaguely normal, there are no obvious physical deformities or injuries, and their ghost takes on that characteristic. But if they die in a situation that's injurious to their physical body, that injury, that effect is carried over to their dead state. So what are we looking for here? What happens?
4: Well, okay, like, let me tell you what my son, who has been seeing spirits since he was a little boy, I'm talking four or five years of age, he has the ability to see somebody that has just passed over, and they're usually it's like he is a lighthouse to them, and they realize he can see them, so they start interacting with him. One of the most common things that he sees is people of sudden death situations, car wrecks, not too pretty sight, murders, things like that. And he feels as though the reason we've discussed this before is because they don't know how to control their appearance yet. Most ghosts that I have had contact with, have actually seen a full apparition, are usually in their 30s. Now, why that is, I don't know. Maybe that was a time of life that we're all happy about or something. But they're peaceful, they're in their 30s, and there's no, you know, trauma around them. Maybe that's because they have been able to, in some way, harness the way that they appear to the living if that makes sense, when they do appear.
1: So is this something, like, as you say, that they instinctively know how to make their appearance look normal as opposed to grotesque?
4: Well, I think that a sudden death victim is the one that, like my son sees, are the ones that he sees that are grotesque. They just died. They have no control over what they're, they're appearing to people as. They're probably bewildered. The, the experiences I've had with tragedy is that they're unrestful and... And they, they got to get the point across. They have unfinished business. So you see them with the gunshot in the, in the chest. Now, Hollywood is off, but they're not too off. There is many times, like here at the Red Garter, that I've seen the one that got stabbed on the steps, and he actually, you know, you can tell he was stabbed. He's very extremely grotesque-looking when he falls down the steps and everything. But then, like, if I see my mother... My mother's sweet and loving, and she's about 30-some years of age, like she was when she was younger, and she's very serene. Does that make sense?
0: That brings up an interesting question, and this is something that I've always wondered about in ghost and spirit cases, and, and I think it's important to make a distinction between those two things, where you know the ghost being a specific person, versus a spirit that I think there are cases where spirits sometimes appear to be almost an emotion, a sort of a, a rendition right. of an emotion. But as far as this whole thing about clothing, Sue, um, th- this is kind of a weird question, but it, it, from what you just described, it's almost as if these apparitions appear in what would be from not only their point of view, but from the experiencer's point of view, sort of an optimum state. And this makes me start to wonder about the notion of apparitions partly being projected manifestations from, from the subconscious versus an external manifestation. And what you're saying about clothing is very interesting because I'd, it's almost like I'd expect to see a ghost be naked. And I don't want to sound you know, sort of gratuitous there, but what is this whole thing about clothing on a ghost... <laughs>
1: Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
0: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: Let's hold the answer and tell our listeners you're in the PowerCast <laughs> <laughs> with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we're talking to Dr. Suze, Dr. Suze Seebeck, the hearse whisperer, she calls herself. And she's also one of the people responsible for the new Saloon Row Ghost Tour at Williams, Arizona. And go to Saloon Row Ghost Tour, all four words together, no spaces.com. We'll have the link over at the PowerCast website. So now... I'm going to, we're going to ask the magic question. Uh, David has posed it, and we know David likes to ask things like this for one reason or another. We'll explore that, uh, his abnormal psychology on the next show, and then mine on the following show. And that is... Why aren't ghosts naked?
4: I think that that's a very good question. I think if if anybody who has experimented with astral travel, remember those old books that you used to be able to get in the back of comic books and things like that? I got one of those back when I was in my my teens. And one of the things it said, now remember, when you go to astral travel, go and put on your astral clothes. I think it's a state of mind that we all have that when you see somebody, they're supposed to be clothed. And I think that's a really good assumption that you just brought up also, that, you know, somebody actually, you know, why aren't they naked? It's right. like because maybe we're projecting that you're supposed to wear clothes. So, okay, I'm seeing it goes from the 1890s. So they would be wearing period clothing, at least in my mind, correct? Right. So maybe subconsciously I'm bringing that forward and actually putting clothes on the ghost, but maybe they are naked. See,
0: now that brings up an interesting point, though, Sue, because one of the things that has come up on the show before, in trying to understand a variety of paranormal phenomenon, it's important to realize that what we're perceiving these phenomenon with is our sensory input devices, our ears, our eyes, Right. Our touch. And so the notion of objectivity becomes really critical. And the question is if what you just said is true and there is some amount of perhaps psychological projection, then how can we know what it is we're really seeing at all?
4: If it's true, if it's in this reality, is that what mm-hmm. you're, you're,
0: yeah. Well, I'm wondering about that, yeah.
4: Yeah, that is something that I have actually asked professors before and other people that have gone to workshops and things and said, how do I know that what I'm seeing is this reality? Or am I seeing, then they'll get into, well, you're bleeding into a parano, you know, parallel universe and, you know, all this other stuff. So, okay, I, my question is, why does Joey fall down the steps every night at the same time here at the Red Garter? Why is only some people see him and others don't and he says uh, the one that I asked this to said because certain people are receptive to this this energy this emotion that was left over and others are not but the owner of the place is actually a skeptic himself and lived in the actual red garter and he has never experienced seeing an apparition but he has heard the actual noise that the apparition leaves over every night, and actually Mm search to see if somebody was breaking into his establishment. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, that also creates the impression here that there has to be some element of belief on the part of the percipient before you see a ghost. So, for example, if I don't believe I'm going to see a ghost... I won't. But then maybe I don't know whether I believe it or not. Maybe we would say, ah, you're trying to act like what you perceive to be quote-unquote normal. You don't want to seem to be too credulous about stuff like that. So you say, of course, I don't believe in ghosts. But deep down inside you do and you will if it happens. But the person who just deep down doesn't believe they're not going to see it? Does it have an objective reality that separates themselves from what you think is going to happen? Mm -hmm. Well, one
4: of the Things, but things to answer that, that we do on the ghost tour every night in the Red Garters. I bring them back to the Red Garter where they start off at at 8 p.m. every night. At 9.30, we walk in, I show them a DVD, and then I turn around and show them actual photos that have been taken by API and by uh, the Ghost Hunters Society. And then I ask them, all right, it's up to you. Do you want to sit down and try to make contact with our ghosts? And they'll be like, some of them are skeptical, oh yeah, okay, fine. So we sit down. I'll go ahead and go down to 70% of the time. There is something that happens that even the skeptics will turn around and go, wow, I need to rethink this. And if they're leaving, I'm, oh, thank you for coming and everything. They'll be like, you know, I really don't believe this, but you made me think <laughs> a little bit more, <laughs> you know, afterwards. <laughs> So maybe these people are coming in totally skeptic and I, I have had a couple I'm not going to say any names on the air but I had a celebrity that I'll just leave it at this he came in from the old 66 Batman and Robin series and he brought his child with him and he uh, was sitting there and he was being kind of a smart alecky and I'm used to it and he was like you know looking under the table oh, I want to make sure there's no wires here make sure that you know my kids getting their money's worth and all of a sudden there was about 50 people in the room they turned around and his face changed. I mean, just literally changed. And I looked at him and I go, what's wrong? He said, didn't you hear that? And we all looked at him like, well, he's just pulling our leg. And I said, what? And all of a sudden on his face, an actual little welt started appearing that would have been uh, probably a slap from the 8- or 9-year-old that sits over in the corner he was sitting by. And I just jokingly said, don't piss my ghost off. (laughs) <laughs> so, and this man you know i mean this is who he is and everything he just stopped in his tracks the rest of the night he was quiet and as we were leaving out the door he turned around to me and he says you know i really want to thank you because i've made fun of this for a long long time and i've been around psychics in hollywood and stuff and thought it was poo poo but i'm really gonna really sit down and rethink my my uh Reality. <laughs> Let me ask so you a th-
1: question. <laughs> this person who came with his son, is this somebody who, one of the people who wore a mask in that TV series? Yes. Yeah. And was is, yeah. it, is it the thinner one or the short, heavy set y- one? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But wait a minute. Let's ask the relevant question here, Sue. You said there were these welts showed up on his face. You're saying that there was a physical manifestation on him from an it- interaction?
4: Yes, there was a physical manifestation on his, on his cheek from something that actually interacted with him. Now, did he do it himself? Was he just being a smart? Maybe I did it so cautiously because I wanted to. I kept thinking, well, I'd really like to hit this guy. You know, but I was trying to be polite and the people sitting around me were kind of having enough of him because when we were doing part of the tour, I said, One of the comments when we go into one of the buildings, it's an old building. We go up on the roof, and I say, okay, listen to me, everybody. Please, don't go over to the side and touch that wire. It's a live wire, and I don't want to be talking about you on the tour as a ghost." And he's like, well, what if I go and touch it and see if you're lying or not? I just kind of ignored him. So that was the kind of, (laughs) you know, I was getting the heckler the whole night. But when this happened, um, you know, everybody in the group was all just, like, looking at him, coming over. And then he had another experience where somebody or something actually touched his hand and made it extremely cold. And we all reached out and touched it. It was ice cold, like an air conditioner. We don't have an air conditioner or a fan in the red garter. So hmm. that was interesting. It made him think.
1: Hey, I don't want to say this whole experience drove him batty, but I can't help it. Oh. Oh. <laughs>
2: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: And in the power cast with gene steinberg and david Biedney bad jokes and all we're talking to dr Suze Seebeck, we just call her Suze. and she has a nickname the hearse whisperer where'd you get that
4: <laughs> you want to know how i got that name yes oh yeah, oh, yeah. Yes. I used to be a funeral director at Westwood Memorial Park there in Los Angeles, and I also worked at a couple other funeral homes in the area. I always got stuck with the hearse that um, didn't work. And getting stuck on the 405, taking a stiff down to the LAX, you know, you don't call AAA and say, please come get me. <laughs> it just doesn't work that well. Oh, by the way, I have a corpse in the back. I need to get to LAX for a flight, and there, nobody will come. So I just learned how to rig the the hearse so the, until they got a new one so my comrades all started calling me the hearse
1: whisperer oh, my. oh boy let me so, ask you a silly question here okay another silly question because I'm going to come in here from the standpoint of somebody who doesn't know much about any of this stuff and maybe here. doesn't buy it yet how if I want to contact a ghost do I go to a haunted house how do I do it
4: no what you do is if you want to contact a ghost you take just a digital recorder that you can buy at Radio Shack for 20 or 30 dollars and you go in anywhere you can even go outside and, in fact, Dave and Sharon of International Ghost Hunters, that's a lot of times what they do. They just go to ruins all over the United States, put in their car with the fan off, the air conditioning off, and, of course, your heater off and everything, and for five, ten minutes, record silence. And then go home and listen to it, and you'd be very surprised what leftover energy is still there. They actually caught a Kiva song that they went to New Mexico to the Aztec ruins and actually caught that on EVP. And I'm telling you, that's true especially listen to that that's probably what 1900 years old voices mm. Mm. like a cd I, it's unbelievable
0: well so you're bringing up evp and i've always been fascinated by the technical underpinnings of what people report as being able to record voices on either analog or digital technology and something that's very important to remember Sue's, is that with a lot of this technology and the way that circuitry is designed, these things have a tendency of doing things like picking up radio frequencies. Um, Correct. And this is this is something that, and and not to go off tangent, but I'm a musician and I have lots of these weird effects pedals that I use for my guitars and my sure. synthesizers, and and yeah. ones that have certain types of circuitry are indeed very very receptive to radio frequencies. So I think it's very important that. You know, to realize that a lot of the time when a recorder is, and again, there are a lot of variables to this, but... It's hard to trust that sort of approach in terms of getting information, trying to get something that would indeed be truly a voice recorded from, or or maybe not even a voice, some kind of an energy, because that that energy that, you know, when we look at what sound is and how sound, you know, is is expressed as perturbations in the air, it's hard then to, and again, not completely denying the potential useful usefulness of evps but i think it's very important to keep in mind that even though evps sometimes can be somewhat compelling that and again excuse me, i'm going to say this and you might not agree with me but i think maybe 85 to 90 percent of the time it's not really what i would call a reliable technology for certainly proving any kind of paranormal activity or capturing anything that is truly paranormal. It just comes down to physics and what sound really is and how our ears perceive sound. I would actually expect that sounds that might be left over from some kind of a paranormal episode would not sound like their source sound that the, the energy would dissipate or change over time and that if you could actually capture this and express it as an audio event that it would sound distorted it wouldn't sound exactly like the original source sound so just to you know, remain somewhat skeptical about the use of EVPs as a, as a tool for proving any kind of paranormal activity I think that's an important point
4: Okay and and I agree with you on many points but let me ask you a question since you're mm-hmm. you're very knowledgeable on this why is it when I get an EVP that it sounds like it's in a submarine or it's far off or even sounds to the point of somebody talking that it can have a feedback but I have no equipment with me that would actually create a feedback yeah, when you say I, feedback right so we are talking about the high whine like you get when you have a feedback you know where you you know what feedback sounds like this would be in the oh sure right so you know that 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 high pitch that you get and it resonates you know so at a, a lot of times when i do evp sessions and everything when I play this back and actually put it on Acoustica um, on the computer to to actually pull apart you know the background noise and everything mm-hmm. and isolate it you will hear at times with different rooms or different places a high pitch that it's like I didn't have anything I didn't have a microphone I didn't have anything sitting out there that would have caused the feedback so what is that why is that happening and as for recording of events and emotions my theory is limestone which is used extremely in the southwest here and you, you know kibab limestone and different limestone in the in the actual structures record it records emotion it records you know sound and i think i wanted to i wanted to pose that to you as a question what do you think about that theory
0: Well, as far as feedback goes, a lot of different things can create an environment where feedback manifests itself. The notion of what feedback is, of course, is that you have a signal that is essentially reverberating back into itself. Actually, in the case of recording things in an environment, uh, certain types of electrical energy will create audible feedback or will create the resonance effect of feedback on, on other sounds that are not related to the thing that creates feedback. Actually, I'd be fascinated, and I don't know if you have any such thing, but do you have a website where you have some of these sounds up?
4: Uh, no, not at this moment. We're working on that now because we've been recording since May 1st here at okay. William. I have a DVD I could send you that has 79 of them that we have captured so far. And their they're voices, like we went into the actual warehouse over here that was used in, in 1901 after the horrendous fire that came through here. And you can hear a woman that distinctly says, thank you for coming, and really? then the next Next thing she says is, um, how much of that do you want to cut? And she's talking about fabric because the next line is, I'll get get that bolt down for you. Hmm. And this was used back when the Babbitt brothers uh, originally uh, took the warehouse and used it for a uh, mercantile after their actual shop burnt down in 1901. Mm. My question would be, Is why would that energy still be playing itself over and it just fit? You know, mm. why would a woman be in there telling you she was going to cut fabric from a bolt? Well,
0: now, wh- when you were saying that thing about limestone before,
4: right. please tell
0: us more about that. When you say limestone, did you say it records sounds?
4: Limestone. Stone is known to be in, like, ley lines. If you studied ley lines, and, and many of our European cities, like even their churches, sacred spots, uh, Stonehenge and everything, they're put on grids on the earth. And when these grids intersect, they we consider them a vortex. Like Sedona, it's sitting on vortexes is the theory, because it's where grids all intersect. Mm-hmm. Well ley lines a lot of times the the limestone, they've done research with this on animals like um for instance geese. Maybe the limestone is sending up the signal that they just internally know this is the way that we go to fly south for the winter. And so they've done research where it records maybe magnetic Energy and then it, it it sends it off almost like a receiver and a, a sender at the same time. And I'm thinking hmm. that a lot of these people that are saying, Well, like I talked to a lady in Wickenburg, and she's like, Oh, my place is so haunted that you know we have all this stuff. And I'm like, Let me ask you a question What are you sitting on? What are these buildings built of? And most of them come back with limestone. Hmm. So I'm thinking that maybe that has a lot to do with, per se, if you want to quote-unquote, haunting.
2: Mm-hmm. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: just interrupt here and say you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We have one more session to go here with Dr. Sue's Dr. Suze Seebeck, the hearse whisperer who makes a hearse work when AAA won't come. <laughs> and um, she's also one of the people responsible for the new Saloon Row Ghost Tour in Williams, Arizona. Go to saloonrowghosttour.com or click on the link at the PowerCast.com. That will be up there. And now let's pursue what David was about to get to in this last section of our interview with Dr. Seuss. Go ahead.
0: What I was going to say was that that's a very interesting theory about limestone. I actually didn't know that about limestone, and I will I will do a little bit more research into that, because that's an interesting thought. I've always wondered about materials that could amplify signals. I don't know that limestone, I don't know about this about limestone, so I'm not going to say something and make a fool of myself, but um, that's something I'll definitely look into, Seuss. It's curious to me, in terms of That again brings up this idea that there are these extenuating factors that have an effect on things like hauntings in that maybe literally there are physical issues in the buildings that help amplify and help direct these kinds of energies where maybe if you had one kind of a a psychic energy in one building, and that building was made of a material that wasn't conducive, as, as it were, to propagating these types of signals, that then you would have a less potent entity or power or energy in another building that was able to amplify these signals so that more people would notice it. That would almost then suggest that there would be some way of building technology that was specifically designed to enhance and focus Spiritual energies. Does that make sense?
4: Yes, it does make sense, and that might be also, if you think about it, our buildings are, a lot of them Victorian Romanesque uh, architecture, and uh, were rebuilt with stone after the three fires here in Williams, hmm. and they're all built right next to each other. So that, I mean, there's no, so there's no support wall. They, they both share it, if you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying. There's nothing mm-hmm. in between. And so that maybe that's why these buildings are so haunted. Because they move from one to another and they're all the same material and psychic energy is being left over. And so many people that go on this tour, especially the sensitive ones, maybe it's more of a, I want to have an experience, you know, which you have to keep thinking about that, too. But then the ones that don't and aren't really expecting it, why are they having stuff happen, too? Right. You know, that's what, is it amplified in these buildings? Is there... There's obviously something going on in Williams, in Wickenburg, in Tombstone, you know, that that vulture mine, for instance, that is left over. There's places in Phoenix, you know, that have leftover residual energy, and people experience it, and other people don't even know what you're talking about. I also think it's a mindset, I think, that if you walk around with blinders on and you don't see the whole picture, if you know what I mean, then they're never going to really have anything. And if they hear something, they're going your logic, you immediately are going to go, oh, well, that's nothing. I try to tell people when they come on the tour, it's like, have you ever had that paranormal experience? And they'll go, Well, I don't know, but I. It's like right there. Stop. That means you did. If you have to question it. Something happened in your life that you have to question, that to me is a paranormal experience.
0: I don't know if I'm willing to make that bridge. Um, I understand exactly what you're saying, and, and actually this, uh, in our previous uh, week's episode, we spoke with a guest of ours who has had some very severe paranormal stuff, and he also brought a version of this point up. But And, and this is something I've said on the show before, Suze. I, I assume at this point that most reports of paranormal stuff are not what I would call true external manifestations you know you always have to but that being said there is some percentage of stuff that is not easily explainable but what you said is really relevant in that if you go into this wanting to experience chances are you will but that's why it's always the people who don't believe who then end up having something severe happen to them that make the most credible witnesses because they have a lot of reasons you know what I'm saying they have a lot of reasons not to fess up to such a thing and when they do That means that something significant probably did
4: happen to them. And I agree with that. That's what happens a lot of times. The people that email afterwards were the ones that were so quiet. Right. And then they're the ones who will turn around and have the great photo or something that we've added to the website. And, like, the little girl who was like, she tried my theory. I know it sounds silly, but if you go up and you want to take a photo of of a ghost, you ask permission. And Hmm. I teach everybody to walk up and go, may I take your photo? And they're like, well, how? How do you not know? Well, your camera doesn't work. You just put batteries in and they drain immediately or something. To me, that's a no. And that, that's happened so much in my career that, you know, you're like, okay, I just put new batteries in. I've done it even three times over at the Grand Canyon Hotel, which is uh, the second most haunted building, according to API investigations, over here in Williams. And I went in to get some photos for my DVD. I took a bunch of batteries with me, and I asked permission. And I guess she wasn't in a good mood, one of the ghosts I was trying to get, because I went through three sets of batteries. Now, I checked the batteries before I even put them in the camera. The camera's not sucking the batteries out. It's a brand new camera. I've, I've gone through all the logic of it. Why was that happening? Well, I think she just didn't want a picture taken. And then later that night, we had guests that came through that were very skeptical. And they got a great uh, orb with a contrail on it in the room that I was trying to take the photo in, where we have the most experience.
1: Let me ask you a silly question because we're just about out of time, but this actually might be something that will ring a bell with some people, and that is the UFO phenomenon, in some ways similar to ghosts because you see lights, other strange effects. Do you think there's a connection or do you think they're totally separate? I
4: think that... Uh, many, many people are having experiences that nobody else will understand. As for is there a life here, we'd have to be very narrow-minded to sit around and say we're the only ones around. I just, That's just my theory. The lights can be caused from many different things. If you've gone to Joplin, Missouri, you see the ghost light. You know, are they gas? Are they a Civil War soldier? Are they, um, you know, are they actually the guy who, who was a, train engineer that got beheaded He's looking for his head you know how are these things being caught you know are these ufos well you can't explain them so you see what i'm saying i get what you're
1: saying one more time tell our listeners about the new saloon row ghost tour in williams arizona and how they can get more information
4: you can go to www.saloonrowghosttour.com or redgarter.com And it starts at 8 p.m. every night except Sundays, unless we have a VIP group. And we walk around three and a half blocks of Williams. It's a historical walking tour with some twists. And we do go into three or four certified haunted buildings. And you may catch something, or you may not. And I tell everybody, we don't have Union Ghosts.
1: <laughs> hey, at one time what I'd like to do is grab David, have him come out to Arizona, and we will both with the family come up to see you and take the tour. I would
4: love that. Ooh. Yes, we're going to be going all Absolutely. the way until the 31st of October. Uh, we may be doing some sort of a winter, uh, kind of like I used to do up at the Grand Canyon at the El Tavar. I used to do Ghost Tales of the um, winter, so we may be doing something like that inside of the Red Garter also for this winter. We're trying to figure that one out yet.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Suze Seebeck, also known as the Hearst Whisperer, for joining us on the PowerCast.
4: Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine?
5: Yes, I sure can. This is UFO magazine and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five issue introductory offer for first time subscribers, nineteen ninety-five, for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast.
1: So, Bill, how do they place the order?
5: People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-U-F-O-M-A-G-A, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill,
1: give us that contact information again.
5: It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina, Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card.
0: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Beednig. You never know what's going to happen next. Well, I think we need to go to the Red Garter and see some ghosts and eat some fine baked goods, Gene, because that sounds she sounds like a great person, and um, I I don't know I, I. i think i need to see what's going on there
1: i think it'll be fun especially if we do see a ghost because i don't expect to see anything i very rarely see anything like when you're driving well that's an exception (laughs) although some people who drive with me may close their eyes they shield their eyes you know they say oh no actually no i'm not as crazy my late brother was really a wild driver. I was afraid to let him have one of my cars to drive. But I would always play with his Italian sports car or something. And he'd say, faster, faster, come on, hit this curve, let's go. Jeez, hit the
0: curve? No, drive around the curve. Don't hit the curve. When you hit the curve, the car falls apart. Well, but maybe uh, that's no. what happened to his cars, why they always required repair. Oh, boy. No, uh, Sue sounds like she has some great stories to tell. And, I, well, you're from Arizona. Is Arizona known for its Paranormal activity? Oh, this is Paran. <laughs> this is Paranormal Central. I mean, I know New Mexico is supposedly a hot spot, but really Arizona? I don't
1: know. Yeah, we a lot of stuff here, especially around Williams, around the Grand Canyon. Lots of wild stuff.
0: Yeah, Can go on there. It's all that heat. It's all that heat, man. It's like Florida, you know, except without the humidity. You, you think so, huh? Well, you know, there's a lot of weird paranormal stuff in Florida too, and I always wondered about whether it was because there are all these sacred Indian burial grounds there. Or whether it was because simply that uh, you know the sun cooked everybody's brains. Oh,
1: I accept it. I accept that after yeah. a couple of days, uh, 110 in the shade, your yeah. brain could feel like it's fried. You'd
0: have fried yeah. brain. But I, I think that, that there's just some compelling stories. You know, it, it's very conceivable that something weird is going on there. I, I think we should go and check it out.
1: I think we will. Before I start the next section here where we talk to Chris Rutkowski, who's a Canadian UFO investigator who's had official cooperation from the Canadian government. We were talking in past episodes about using Photoshop to analyze... Alleged UFO photos. Well there is something over at the Drudge Report. We won't be there when you see it, folks. Where they have a picture of Fidel Castro looking at a news story about himself. was their headline? This is how Photoshop has invaded our culture. It says Real or Photoshop?
0: question mark. You know, I've said it on the radio before, Photoshop is one of those things where it's a product that has a brand name that is now being used as a verb, and companies can't buy that kind of marketing. And it's interesting to me that actually Adobe has tried to stop people from using the word Photoshop as a verb, which to me is is when the legal department is not talking to marketing. Because if you can get that status, baby, play it. I mean, that's the best thing. People don't talk about Corel photo painting an image. Corel who?
2: About... <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, Who's no Carell? one's color studioing anything. So I think when people talk about Photoshop as an action, as the process of making images, I think that that's a very powerful thing. It tells you a lot about the absolute success of that product in its, in its target market. I think every company in the world, including Microsoft, wishes they had such a player. But this is not a technology show, Gene. This is the Paracast.
1: That's right. And coming up next is Chris Rutkowski to talk about the best Canadian UFO
5: sightings. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown? Things that go bump in the night? UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world.
6: You're in the Paracast with
1: Gene Steinberg and David Badney. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Chris, first question I want to ask you on this session of the Paracast is how you got interested in UFOs.
6: Well, uh, I was uh, really fascinated with the whole concept of space and astronomy and all that great stuff back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, uh, when the... Uh, Moon launches were going on when Apollo was on TV. Uh, Actually, even before that, I remember my parents uh, showing me some of the Gemini and Mercury launches, and I was only semi interested back then. Uh, But, uh, you know, with Apollo, and I got caught up in the whole space thing, uh, something grabbed me. Something made me really uh, get interested in the concept of what's really out there, what it's really like. And in the mid 1970s, uh, I was involved in some uh, astronomy groups, and, you know, right about that that time, there's a major wave of UFO activity in Canada, particularly in uh, my own province of Manitoba. Hmm. And I took it upon myself to to try and find out. I was in astronomy at university. The calls were coming into our astronomy department, uh, but, you know, nobody in the astronomy department was all that interested. So I thought, well, you know, maybe to uh, uh, get in the good with my uh, professors, I'll uh, take the calls for them. And I started talking with uh, some of the people who had been calling in to report what they've been seeing. And even though we were told there's no such thing as UFOs, uh, I thought, you know, some of these people seem to really believe they've seen something, and they don't always sound as though they were mistaking something for another. So I ended up going out and talking to individuals, and pretty soon found myself being asked to write about what I had learned and uh, to give uh, public presentations and lectures. And you know I over the years uh, with a series of investigations and, and further research it uh, really uh, began to appreciate that there is something to the ufo phenomenon beyond misidentifications i can't explain the small residual percentage of cases but uh you know that's fine with me scientifically i'm I'm glad to just simply say i can't explain this certain percentage but uh, there's something there and i think that uh, science should take a closer look looking at
1: the entire experience have you ever had a ufo sighting to call your own
6: no, you know, I've been on a number of UFO watches. I've, uh, I've been out to uh, so-called UFO hotspots, and I've seen some interesting lights, but nothing that I would really have to say completely baffled me. I've seen some fascinating uh, phenomena. I've seen uh, some ball lightning even in my, uh, in my years. Hmm. I've seen uh, some plasma corona discharges. I've seen spectacular fireballs and I've seen uh, some of the spook lights that I think are probably related to uh, some refractions uh, down very long, mile roads uh, under the right conditions. But nothing that I would classify as a a bona fide UFO. Chris, you were talking about a
0: UFO wave in Canada in the mid-'70s. What were the types of... Objects that were seen in that wave were there a particular? Was there a tendency towards a specific shape or type of object?
6: This particular wave in Manitoba and into Ontario, and it's extended into Western Canada as well. It was known as the Charlie Red Star Wave, and this was a a typical red ball of light that I'm sure we're all familiar with now. Uh, But this was an object that would be seen zipping down roads, flying overhead, bobbing along in an undulating pattern. Uh, In fact, uh, police officers took chase. Um, In fact, there were so many people uh, who had seen the uh, objects described on newscasts that uh, the city folk drove out to the country and lined the farm roads uh, at the, in the middle of the night uh, in the summer. In fact, there's so many of them. They're actually traffic jams in the middle of, the, of nowhere, literally. Uh, and it, it really became a real pop culture type of thing to do to, to try and see the UFOs for for yourself. There were some uh, objects seen during the day, and these varied from uh, silver metallic discs. There were actually a silver metallic triangular object that was seen on a number of occasions. Mm. But uh, for the most part, these were nocturnal lights, and uh, uh, this was a a real nighttime extravaganza.
1: You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Viadney. We're talking to Chris Rutkowski. He is co-author of a new book called The Canadian UFO Reports, The Best Cases Revealed. And in looking over some of your past history, you were also involved in a book covering abductions, right? That's right, yeah. Now, that's an area that we haven't covered too much on the Paracast, and I think I'd like to focus on that for a few moments, and that is one of the theories that David and I have bandied about is that sometimes, or maybe all the time, we don't know, a lot of these abduction scenarios, at least the ones recalled through hypnotic regression, Have the danger of being self-created self-generated because maybe the hypnotist is being a little too eager to push the remembrance to a specific area what do you think
6: i would have to completely agree in fact i very reluctantly got involved uh, in the abduction phenomenon from an investigative point of view when individuals would come up to me after a lecture and say you know I, i really would like to talk with you about an experience that i've had and I'm having trouble dealing with these memories or dreams or whatever. And uh because the the people came to me with such earnest request for help, uh I felt compelled to to assist them in some way. And I agreed to uh uh, counsel or, or work with these people under some, certain conditions and one was that I would work with a clinical psychologist and I ended up finding a clinical psychologist who was really not into the abduction phenomenon in any way uh, but was willing to explore it as a possibility of helping the uh, the abductees deal with their thoughts and memories because so it was giving them great anxiety and uh, causing them concern in their own lives and it, once it's starting to affect your own lives uh, then it's uh, of concern for psychology so I uh, worked with the clinical psychologist who did some regression. We, of course, didn't jump in right away. It involved some sessions of uh, just some counseling, and the uh, the regression was really just to help the uh, the person who had the abduction experience relax and to better understand what it was that they were in fear of. And in many cases, this was uh, the primary emotion uh, some sort of fear about something that has happened. So we worked with several individuals. And um, in fact, one person uh, had uh, a profound uh, memory of something that happened uh, a number of years before uh, coming to me after a lecture. And this is where he was laying in bed, classic nighttime encounter and he suddenly found himself unable to move Uh, he was somehow paralyzed and he saw uh, because he could still direct his eyes towards uh, a doorway through which without opening the door uh, a creature of some sort not like the classic uh, whitley streber triangular head almond shaped dark eye gray creature this was a, a different type of round head with some sort of helmet penetrating eyes approached this individual uh, while he was paralyzed in bed and according to this person he had a a wand or a baton in his hand with a light on the end and this uh, person's fear increased as the creature got closer and closer and at one point the creature uh, touched the tip of the wand to his forehead and under regression Uh, He was very calm and getting more agitated as we were approaching this point and when he had reached the point where he felt that this creature had touched his forehead with this wand, he literally jumped out of the reclining chair that he was Hmm. being regressed in and uh, had such a violent reaction that it took some time to calm him down. And later in debriefing, the clinical uh, psychologist who I had been working with, he said, you know, I've been working for 20 years, with police on a number of cases and uh, working with individuals for a long time in private practice and that was the most extreme reaction that he had ever found what does that attest to the truth and uh, to the uh, veracity of this particular case it's hard to say but there's no question that uh, in, in some abduction cases there's a very profound event and uh, that has really traumatized some individuals and i think that only working through uh, counselors and clinical psychologists can the abductees themselves benefit by such an investigation
0: well, the name of your book is abductions and aliens what's really going on so what was the conclusion of your book Chris what did you find is really going on well I
6: found it there were it wasn't one unique uh, explanation. There's no question that uh, many people today are having experiences that seem to be related to such aliens coming into our environment one way or another. In the book, I label this uh, an alien abduction syndrome, AAS, in the sense that uh, there doesn't seem to be a a reality associated with this. In many cases, it's simply a dream. In some cases, it's profound memory, but you trace them back, and uh, it's difficult to find one particular starting point. Many abductees have had a a lifetime of experience like this. Some uh, have been found to have very strong fantasy-prone personalities. Mm -hmm. And still others don't seem to fall into neat little categories like that. Um, We know that in some of the individuals who have come to us, in fact, one woman had come to me with a very profound uh, abduction experience with her uh, daughter, a very young daughter, a five-year-old daughter, who appeared to be involved somehow as well. And it turned out that uh, this woman had been uh, date-raped. A number of years previous and she had made this breakthrough uh, with a, a psychiatrist in reliving that event in a completely different session the night that she believed that the abduction experience had occurred and there's no question that the two were related um, and in another case we had an abductee who attempted suicide because he believed that the aliens were monitoring him and keeping track of him, and uh, enough was enough
2: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: Well, i pursue that in greater detail in a second, Chris, but I want to tell our listeners you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Talking to Chris Rutkowski, he's co-author of a new book called The Canadian UFO Report's Best Cases Revealed. If you want to learn more about the book, we have a link at the PowerCast.com website. And now we're breaking down some of the instances with regard to the abduction scenario. And, Chris, I want you to go ahead.
6: Sure. Uh, what I was going to simply say is that when you have cases where individuals... Uh, are attempting suicide and there is some uh, serious physical Uh, abuse involved, uh, uh, it's really out of the realm of the ufologist, and uh, I would strongly recommend that uh, some psychologists be involved, counselors, therapists who really specialize in in this. And the problem is, once you label something a UFO abduction, uh, sometimes therapists and counselors will shy away uh, from that because of the stigma of the UFO phenomenon, unfortunately, and yet there's many people out there who would greatly benefit from having some professional psychology, deal with some of the trauma, and then work on whatever else there might be.
0: So based on your opinion, Chris, on what you found in doing this book, what percentage of people's claims of being abducted do you think are genuinely not easily explained uh, with the kinds of psychological context you brought up? What what percentage of these things are truly
6: odd? Hmm. That's a good question, Uh, and uh, the problem is I'm not studying the phenomenon as closely as some of my colleagues, but from the cases that I've dealt with, I would say that the percentage is quite low. I would say that only about uh, 10% of the individuals who I've encountered probably have a a case that could not easily be handled through... uh, clinical psychology and related to a uh, personal trauma or uh, some other traumatic event uh, within their frame of reference.
0: That's that's kind of what I expected, and and, and actually that's somewhat in line with my own feelings about this, that, you know, um, what makes the entire field of paranormal research interesting to me is that I always assume that there's about 2% of all of these things, whether we're talking UFOs or hauntings or any other kind of paranormal activity, I assume somewhere between two to four percent of these things are what I would consider legitimate, things that are truly not explainable the uh, fill-in-the-blank.
6: That's uh, very close to what Jeff Dittman and I uh, talk about in uh, our latest book, The Canadian UFO Report, uh, in which we've been conducting a, a study, uh, a national study in Canada, although you can certainly extrapolate uh, to all of North America and certainly to the United States uh, by itself, that around 3 to 5% of the cases which are reported every year uh, are what we classify as the high-quality unknowns. Mm -hmm. Uh, because there are, uh, you know, many cases that have explanations, others that we have simply insufficient evidence to form any kind of realistic conclusion, and others that are interesting, perhaps unexplainable, but don't really grab us in the sense that we don't have uh, a really good idea of what was seen and and, uh, what circumstances. In those three to five percent, however, we have very reliable witnesses, possibly pilots, uh, air traffic control operators, uh, or multiple witnesses, or perhaps the case was investigated in very great detail and we have good documentation. Perhaps there's photographs or other evidence involved. And as I say, this this small number or this small percentage seems uh, to be relatively insignificant. But when you look over uh, the the time period that we're looking at, we're right now um, looking at something of the order of 15 to 20 years of conducting this uh, ongoing study. Uh, we've got uh, several thousand cases into the database now that we've looked at in great detail. And uh, this 3 to 5% then starts to add up and becomes very significant indeed. So there are some very interesting cases out there. And we're trying to provide a bridge between the scientific community, that is we're looking at hard data, not doing the speculation, but simply recording what people are actually seeing, and then presenting it in a scientific way, but in the book certainly in an educational and informative way for the average person to assess that this is what people really are seeing, the objects themselves, and uh, the interpretation is really left up to the reader.
4: Let
1: me ask you here, what do you think are the most compelling sightings? The stuff that fits largely into the unexplained category, but presents a lot of internal evidence. Maybe we can discuss over the next few minutes some case histories, one or more. What do you think strikes your fancy as something that we really need to understand more about?
6: Well, I think we really uh, have to look at uh, some of the classic cases, but at the same time, look at what's happening today in the context of some of the history. In fact, one of my biggest pet peeves is that individuals we're studying and investigating today. Uh, we'll come across. Uh, cases that have echoes of uh, pre- previous cases that could shed insight into what's going on today. Yet, because of a lack of uh, knowledge or a lack of research, uh, they simply don't uh, put the pieces together. And I think because the UFO phenomenon is such a broad, multifaceted type of phenomenon, there's a big jigsaw puzzle that has to be looked at with a lot of pieces. <laughs> mm-hmm. and sometimes it, the pieces don't always fit. Some of the cl- best cases that uh, we have looked at, one of the best This one comes from 1967 in uh, northwestern Ontario, uh, eastern Manitoba. In fact, just above the little hump that sticks out of Minnesota in the northwest angle place called Falcon Lake. Uh, in that time, uh, amateur prospector was uh, chipping away at some quartz in the middle of the day, somewhere around uh, noon. And a classic Hollywood-style flying saucer, metallic object, appeared to descend and land on a rock outcropping about uh, uh, 100 feet away from him. He watched this object over a period of time. There were bright lights coming out of uh, an upper portion. It had a dome, and uh, there was a little door that appeared in the side of it uh, that seemed to open up all of a sudden. He heard some voices, and he thought, well, you know, since there's no such thing as flying saucers, this obviously must be some sort of American military craft that they just set down because there's some problem. So he actually walked up to this thing and shouted out, uh, "Come on, Yankee boys! Come on out, and I'll give you a hand with your broken-down ship." The voices stopped, and he realized, "Oh, maybe this is an hmm. American." <laughs> so he, he happened to be multilingual, very, very uh, a- educated person. He called out in Russian the same words, and then German, and then another language. Uh, but the voices didn't start. But he had been walking close to the closer and closer, he touched the side of this object with his hand, he had a glove on the rubberized glove actually melted and he poked his head in the opening and saw that there was a maze of flashing lights inside as well well he pulled his head out and suddenly the door shut a whole object rotated and there was a grill of some sort in front of him, which from which shot a blast of hot gas, knocking him down, setting his clothes on fire and giving him burns, and the object took off
2: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: Oh boy, let me pause and tell our listeners before we ponder the meaning of that. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Chris Rutkowski joins us. He's co-author of a brand new book, The Canadian UFO Reports, The Best Cases Revealed. He studied astronomy, taught science, and he's looking at the UFO phenomenon from a scientific viewpoint here, trying to get the cases that offer the most evidence. And this is a wild one,
6: I'll yeah. tell you. It, is, it has all the elements. It gets even better because he eventually made it back to civilization. This is a remote area. He staggered back to uh, uh, to get help. He was eventually taken to a hospital in a large city and uh, examined by doctors there. He did have uh, second and third degree burns. The site was investigated not only by the Canadian authorities, the Canadian Air Force and the RCMP, but uh, the American Air Force, U.S. Air Force, came up as part of the uh, Colorado study And uh, from Blue Book. In fact, it's listed in Condon as one of the classic cases. And if you look in Condon, it's listed as, unidentified. It had no explanation for what occurred to this individual. Now in Canada we were able to obtain many of the official military and government documents relating to the case. Uh, uh, This man was uh, very uh, outspoken. He was able to uh, describe in great detail what what he had seen and to his dying day he insisted that what happened really happened. He was physically burned. He actually went to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester for an examination where they had no explanation for what had happened. In fact, they even sent him to the psychiatric department where the psychiatrist had said this is, this man is of sound mind and is not prone to fantasy and making stories up. So we have all the elements that, that you could possibly have in a classic ufo case we have the, the documents which are available uh, many individuals who are involved we have uh, the witness himself, his whole family was cooperating and physical evidence, in fact there was some radiation found at the site by some of the investigators uh, to such an extent that they actually thought of closing off this entire area because they thought it was of a danger to the public and they actually dug up a nuclear waste dump or went to the to the nuclear waste dump to to take a look to see if anybody had dug up any waste to try and sprinkle around the site because that was the only explanation that they had for why this area would be so radioactive.
1: That also raises the other question, which is theorized by some people that a lot of these unexplained UFO cases are in reality government experiments. And I'm thinking particularly about the U.S., maybe Russia, that kind of thing, and that brings us back to the old area 51 legends and everything that but we are seeing so-called secret weapons not alien spacecraft what do you think
6: I I think there is a very strong possibility that we're dealing with some of that in this case uh, we had thought about that Um, it's interesting that the witness himself never thought that this was an example of an alien technology. He still thought it was some sort of a American secret weapon or vehicle of some kind. The problem is that if there really was such a device in existence in 1967, we certainly would have heard a little more evidence. I know that, you know, black projects can be kept under wraps for a long time, and we have Roswell and, and Area 51 and so forth. But, you know, to have no other parallel case like this at all suggests that uh, this was not a case of an isolated uh, American test because we'd have other tests that would have been caught and eventually uh, come out in one way or another. So I don't think this is uh, an explanation in this case. But on the other hand, there's no question that some information and some tests are kept from the public for whatever reasons and that there are technologies vastly ahead of what we have today, uh, commercially, that are being kept for military use. It simply stands to reason that this is how uh, our society and how our government military Hmm. will be operating.
1: Moving back then, because we'll go to other cases in a moment, Roswell, was that a secret weapon also? Maybe something that was acquired from the Germans, German technology, or was it? a ufo still unexplained or or a balloon which is the explanation the government gives us
6: right well as in my opinion only i I don't think that the evidence is there to say it was definitely an alien technology on the other hand uh, i think uh, the evidence is uh, not all that strong for the balloon either and I, i what i can say is that at this point in time because roswell has created an error of mystery about it, there's so much mythology and information, and particularly disinformation written about it, I doubt that we'll ever get to the bottom of what occurred at Roswell. It could be something as relatively as mundane as a military experiment gone wrong, or it could be something much more exotic. The trouble is uh, it's a long time in the past and uh, a little too long to get any real answers, and I suspect that the government documents the smoking guns are never going to be found. That would be the type of thing that would have been burned long, long ago.
0: Well, along those lines, Chris, in a recent episode, we had Jesse Marcel Jr. on the show, and uh, he said some things that were very telling, and I almost considered to be smoking gun statements. The two things in particular that uh, Marcel said was that the um, materials that he claimed he handled that night in the kitchen of his house Mm -hmm. were not the same things in the photos of his father later on he said absolutely positively this was not the same stuff at all yeah there was that and then there was also the fact that according to marcel the air force had come back to him in recent years trying to get him to recant his story trying to get him to say that the stuff that he handled was the remnants of this secret balloon project that they would hit up jesse's and marcel all these years later to try to get him to change his story. I think that's very telling. And one thing that was clear was that Marcel is definitely not the kind of guy who's going to get on a show like ours and make statements that are sensationalistic. It's just not who he is.
1: No, I think he's also the kind of person who doesn't seek publicity because if I hadn't contacted him out of the blue and demonstrated that we have a show that we try to treat things at a higher level than some other radio shows, I don't think he would have come on. He doesn't... Do that many public appearances. He's not into that.
6: Right, and I agree with you on that. I think Marcel is a very... A very courageous, sincere individual, and I, I have uh, understood, and uh, my uh, colleague, Stan Friedman, has been uh, talking extensively about the uh, the fact that the material that Marcel held was very different from the one in the photograph and I agree, but when i 'm talking smoking gun i 'm talking that the cordite is still in the air, that uh, uh, we don 't have those pieces that he had in his hands unfortunately right. a uh, right. boy i 'd like to get a copy of one of those.
1: <laughs> I still <laughs> oh, voice that theory with as often as I can get away with voicing a theory. That there is that underground <laughs> that underground storage facility where we stick all this technology and then we put in a box and it's filed away and we don't pay attention. Of course, what David's referring to is the movie <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. So what do you think, Chris? Do you think we just throw it away? and forget about it
6: I think there probably are some some gems that are filed away by uh, uh, by some myopic uh, bureaucrats somewhere
1: aren't they all (laughs) <laughs>
6: well, I like saying there's there's absolutely convincing evidence that the aliens have come down and taken over the minds and bodies of uh, certain individuals on Earth, because how else can you explain politicians? Oh. <laughs> it's
1: part of an invasion to bring more stupidity to our world.
6: That's
5: right. Well, of course, this
6: was, this actually goes right to the heart of a lot of what we're talking about. I mean, what we are suggesting could be a major cover-up, could also be an example of uh, astounding incompetence as well. I mean, would, uh, would the government really be as incompetent as to uh, leak out information in such a manner and crash things in such a manner and and have the documents uh, sitting right there for uh, Stan Friedman or Grant Cameron or somebody to find. Sure, Uh,
1: I believe that uh, in a minute. Exactly.
6: Exactly. (laughs) That's the problem. (laughs) This is is the same government that uh, handles Medicare and uh, other military spendings, and this is the same government that's supposed to be as competent uh, as to handle a cover-up of that magnitude. So
1: It's called Hurricane Katrina. If you want to know how the U.S. government works and how competent it is, look at any disaster that comes out there. They always react after the fact, never before. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. Or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
5: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's
0: going to happen next.
1: Before we react too late to the situation, let me tell our listeners you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Chris Rutkowski, co-author of a new book, The Canadian UFO Report's Best Cases Revealed. And we have a link at thepowercast.com to Amazon Books where you can just place an order for a copy. It's just out and we're waiting for our copy here at the show and we'll have more information. David, I know you're champing at the bit. I can sense it psychically.
0: As far as the government keeping secrets, It's the theories that I've heard is that and, and, and this is the constant running conspiracy theory is that there is a secondary government, a black ops government that is essentially doing this stuff without the knowledge of many of the bureaucrats. Though Of course, they probably theoretically have their own bureaucracies. Um, Along those lines, Chris, what have you found in terms of dealing with the Canadian government? I mean, there's got to be some way to kind of do what I call the the little backdoor trick. You know, an old hacker trick is to get into a computer system via an old password that an original programmer left in the system to get in through the back door. Mm -hmm. And I have to believe that there's got to be some way to use what is probably a slightly more open government in Canada, To sort of get to some of the secret stuff that we're sitting on, or I mean, what has your experience been in terms of dealing with the Canadian government in terms of disclosure?
6: That's uh, an interesting situation. Uh, here in Canada, uh, the uh, the government operates in a, in a quite a different way than the United States, and believe it or not, we have good cooperation from the Canadian government. Now, I say that with some reservation, but I, I state it because in our book, and we talk about it uh, to a certain extent, back in the 1990s, uh, because uh, of my affiliation with uh, astronomy and astronomy societies, At that time, and actually since the the 1960s, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police had received an official directive to cooperate with um, the, the Canadian Research Uh, establishments, particularly the National Research Council of Canada, in uh, collecting information on uh, fireballs. This was uh, that uh, it was possible for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Canada to talk to the individuals who had seen these bright lights in the sky and the premise that these were meteors and fireballs so that it would be possible to get them right on the ground and uh, get the uh, scientists uh, zeroed in to where the meteorite lay on the ground. Now, what happened was, in order for the RCMP to get these meteorite uh, cases, uh, they'd have to collect information on lights in the sky, and so the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were directed to investigate UFO reports. These UFO reports were sent to the National Research Council of Canada, where uh, they were quickly assessed by an astronomer, and if it was deemed uh, some sort of astronomical object like a fireball it was sent to the astronomy department and uh, trying to they were trying to get a hold of where this object might have crashed to the ground. If it was not obviously an astronomical object it was filed away in a filing cabinet never to be seen again and so the Canadian government was amassing many reports of unidentified flying objects that had no explanations but was doing nothing with whatsoever. Hmm. Now, uh, back when in the, uh, the, if we zoom in, ahead to the '90s, it was realized that that, in effect, Canadian government was investigating UFOs, and this was not good bureaucratically and it was, uh, they didn 't want to be looked upon as uh, having anything to do with the UFO phenomenon, which is certainly taint reputations so they said well let 's try and find a civilian who would be interested in uh, taking reports off our hands and channeling the information to them. Oh. And uh, that individual happened to be me. I was in the right place at the right time, and beginning in the year 2000, the UFO reports sent through uh, the uh, Canadian Air Force or into Transport Canada, the Aviation uh, uh, Wing would be equivalent of uh, the Aviation uh, Transport uh, Center in the United States, began being sent to me as a researcher. Since 2000, uh, it's been routine that we get uh, excellent cases from uh, individuals across Canada, in many cases, military observers. For the most part, pretty benign, pretty common lights in the sky, but occasionally something rather remarkable. And in fact, in the year 2004, uh, the Prime Minister of Canada was aboard a a plane in the province of Alberta en route to a, a meeting when his pilot Saw a UFO flash across uh, the windshield of his plane and reported it uh, through proper channels to the authorities and um, made its way to me. The Prime Minister himself um, may or may not have witnessed it, uh, but we do know that a report was made from his. own aircraft so there are some fascinating gems that uh, we've been able to find through a cooperation with the Canadian government you don't now, think
1: there are any cases that maybe they're holding back some really hot ones
6: well that was uh, simply what I was going to add here I don't think that I'm getting all the as you say the, the hot ones are the really good ones however some of the ones that we do get are very very unusual a case just from this year near a city called Sudbury in Ontario uh, an individual was driving along a road saw three objects, very bright, luminous objects, in an isolated area uh, late at night. Um, He was driving towards them, and uh, the three of them moved toward him and then went on three separate paths. One rose, one moved to the side and hovered, and the other one came right towards his truck, and zoomed by, as he described, within five feet of his truck on the uh, driver's side. Jeez. And he could tell it was, uh, all he could say was about a foot or two feet in diameter, uh, some sort of plasma-like spinning thing, and went right by his truck. I'd say that's a fairly significant case, and uh, probably nothing militarily connected with that one, but yet it's a, a classic, uh, no, I wouldn't even say classic, a remarkable case uh, of something that is occurring today uh, in North America
1: looking at consistency now that you've gotten a hold of all these cases and as you say we don't know what might be withheld from you can you get any consistent range as to the unexplained what kind of UFOs people see the shapes and what kind of entities or beings they may see if they actually see anything at all
6: sure one of the things we're working on is something called the Canadian UFO survey since 1989 We've been compiling all the cases that we're able to obtain from uh, civilian investigators and from government files, uh, whether it be somebody from uh, uh, from British Columbia in Vancouver or out uh, to the East Coast uh, in the Maritimes. Uh, collecting the data and then doing some basic analyses of them and this means you know how many per province uh, how many uh, are red and how many are white and how many are silver discs and how many are white amorphous blobs and so forth and over the years we're getting a very interesting picture we know that one interesting uh, bit of data is that there are more witnesses uh, who are in pairs or more than one person at a time seeing UFOs over the years. And the reason we think that is because we think people are uh, spending more and more time with colleagues and willing to come forward, and also the colleagues are, are helping to corroborate one's own reports. So it's not necessarily a matter of assembly by his or herself. But there's more people involved, so more and more individuals seeing objects in the sky. We know that the classic Hollywood flying saucer, the disc-shaped object with the uh, a little dome, that appears to be on the way out. In fact, uh, we do have some reports of discs, but these have been supplanted largely by triangles. Uh, whether that's due to the X-Files or not, uh, I'm not sure. but the shapes themselves are changing. The colors change appear from from year to year. We know that the demographics in terms of uh, the geography. One year there may be a a significant flap of cases in the west, and the next year it may travel into the east. What we do see in terms of consistency is that the number of UFO reports is increasing. This flies in the face of individuals who say that the UFO phenomenon has gone away. This is simply not true when you look at the actual data. In fact, uh, last year, the last year, complete year for which we have information, was the second highest level of UFO reports recorded since we began studying the phenomenon in 1989. In fact, the peak was the year before that, when there were almost 900 UFO reports in Canada in one year that were uh, filed officially.
2: You've entered another dimension, you've entered the Paracast.
1: Hey, let me pause and tell our listeners you're in the power cast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're having a fascinating, absolutely fascinating discussion separating UFO fact from fiction with Chris Rukowski, author with Jeff Dittman of the Canadian UFO reports, best cases revealed. And we're spending some time here talking about what may be the best cases, what might be the cases that are the most significant, the stuff that we don't understand. Let's look at this. Have you had a chance, and I realize you've got so many cases to deal with in Canada, that this may be difficult, to compare the trends of UFO activity in your country to the U.S., to Europe, to Asia, et cetera?
6: Well, this, in fact, has been very difficult because there isn't a comparable study like ours in the United States. Uh, People like Peter Davenport, who do the, uh, you know, he compiles an excellent web page on the cases themselves and does a basic count. But in terms of statistical studies, there really isn't one, even MUFON which does some statistical stuff, doesn't have a completely broad view of what's going on from one end of the country to the other. In fact, we're only able to do the Canadian uh, UFO survey at all because we do have cooperation with all the active investigators uh, in Canada, and there's not that many, so we're uh, benefiting from the fact there aren't as many. Of course, we are not as many in terms of number either, but we are able to look at the entire picture across Canada, which we can't do. The only comparable studies... Uh, On this scale, are uh, uh, in Spain, where there's a a similar study, and in Finland, where they also have uh, government access to reports. And percentages are there. We're looking at 3 to 5 uh, percent of uh, really high quality, reliable unknowns. Uh, We're looking at uh, somewhere of the order of, you know, 65 to 70 percent nocturnal lights, which again is consistent from country to country. And in terms of the actual entity cases, they're really, really very, very rare. In fact, only one or two cases are reported every year of entities. In fact, uh, we've had this discussion before in other circles, pardon the pun, but the classic uh, landing trace cases are almost vanished from record back in the uh, 60s and 70s. Uh, landing traces, the circular formations. You can go back to the Tully saucer nests in Australia. Those types of things uh, are almost non-existent today, possibly supplanted by crop circles, which may or may not be related to uh, the UFO phenomenon. But uh, the uh, the trend appears to be moving away from the physical traces, and to me, that's very very curious. Why would an entire category of uh, UFO reports, in which uh, somebody sees a UFO land and take off and leave behind the traces of some why would that entire category almost vanish? Uh, there are very few cases uh, being recorded today by people like Ted Phillips, and we wonder why would that be. Uh, it's difficult to say unless there's a you know complete reversal or, or a skew in thinking on the minds of the aliens who may be doing it or in the way that the objects themselves are being reported. Mm-hmm.
0: That leads me to another question, Chris. What about large-scale sightings? Where you've got more than a few people, you have crowds of people seeing stuff. What's been the incidence along those lines in Canada?
6: Well, we had uh, an absolute fantastic case. Uh, again, this, this has all the earmarks of something you'd really want. Uh, in December of 1996 in the Yukon, of all places, uh, literally dozens and dozens of people living uh, over a 200-mile stretch along a place called Fox Lake in the central Yukon. Uh, in the evening, uh, individuals at the uh, southern part of the uh, lake, uh, possibly driving in some cases, sometimes uh, just uh, uh, sitting at their residences, saw a very large object described as large as a, a football field. You've heard that description before, mm-hmm. but with windows and flashing lights moving slowly, very ponderously over the valley. And uh, having very good descriptions. Turns out that upon investigation, and this involved a lot of legwork on the part of an excellent investigator named Martin Jasek. Uh, He tracked down, as I said, literally dozens of people in different locations who had not reported the uh, object, had not collaborated or uh, colluded with one another, all describing the exact same thing from different angles at different time periods as the object made its way down the valley And the time checked. different drawings were examined. There's absolutely no question that a profoundly strange phenomenon occurred, a large object seen by many people. over a period of time collaboration was ruled out the uh, degree of accuracy with which uh, their descriptions matched was uh, you know literally unbelievable
1: you were able then to triangulate this entire experience or at least a large portion of it
6: absolutely the path was uh, was nailed down precisely what's curious is that martin jasek went to the extent of raising the issue with the yukon government and uh, it was actually raised in the yukon parliament calling upon a government investigation into what was going on unfortunately nothing was acted upon but it still stands as another classic case where the public wanted to know and uh, the uh, government was silent but there's something about what you
0: just said, Chris. This thing was moving ponderously and slowly, and dozens
6: of people saw it. Nobody grabbed a camera? <laughs> oh. Isn't that amazing? Still, there were absolutely no photographs of what, of what was seen. Mm. But these are people driving along the highway and couldn't get to it. Or uh, there, was one, there were several witnesses who were around uh, a home, and the object came by, and it never occurred to them to grab their camera.
1: It reminds you of that case you talked about, David, on the earlier episode involving the sighting in Venezuela, where so many witnesses, but you've never seen any photos of this, have you?
0: Well, I can't say I've really gone and looked for any. I I theorize, Gene, that somewhere in Caracas, in a drawer in someone's apartment or someone's shanty house, there's a packet of photos of that dang thing sitting there. And I suspect that's the case for a lot of different countries. Where, And Chris mentioned it earlier, there's a stigma, so with this people don't want to talk about their experiences you know I, I've had a kind of a hard time justifying myself and just so you know Chris this is how I feel about this stuff it's been hard for me to sort of open up and talk about this stuff because it uh, it does get you in trouble so I mean I mean it's to me when people are willing to step forward and talk about this stuff and they seem to have fairly credible stories I, I take that as a sign that There is something going on. It it doesn't help one's social life or one's, you know, professional life to talk about this stuff. And our guest last week, Jeff Ritzman, made this point very clearly. They... He and his wife have lost a lot of friends over these things. Mm-hmm. This is not I would, something, you know.
6: I would have to agree. And one of the other projects we've done up here in Canada, we actually have done a, a poll, our own private poll, in which we surveyed Canadians by phone, uh, the same way that uh, other professional polls are done, and uh, found uh, about ten percent of Canadians believe they've seen UFOs. And that agrees completely with uh, surveys done by uh, Roper and Gallup and, and others who believe that about 10% of North Americans uh, think they've seen UFOs or what they believe to be UFOs. And that's a significant uh, percentage of the population. And, you know, in Canada, uh, that percentage means somewhere around 3 or 4 million people. So it's not as significant as the United States. And yet... We are getting more and more cases every day, and it's the type of thing where you can casually mention UFOs at a cocktail party or a social gathering at a bar, and at least in Canada, what we found is that everybody seems to have a story or knows someone who had an experience, or I knew the guy who that happened to or where that was. And it's become such an important part of our culture that uh, you begin to look at the UFO phenomenon as a cultural phenomenon in the sense that aliens are on television shows uh, uh, doing uh, you know some particular thing or on uh, television commercials selling us decongestant or Pepsi or, or what have you. It's part of our culture, and it's interesting that it perhaps is driving this interest or increasing this interest in what's really going on. And I think the ridicule curtain that was defined by Joseph Allen Hynek many years ago is slowly, slowly coming down. I mean, we're—I uh, think we're starting to have more and more people feel comfortable about it. At the same time, because there is such a stigma attached to it, it's very slow going, and uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, glitches along the way. You've
2: entered another dimension. You've entered Paracast.
1: During the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietny. we're proud to be talking to Chris Rutkowski. He is the co-author of the Canadian UFO Reports, the best cases revealed. And many of these cases came to him and his co-author by cooperation with the Canadian government. Speaking of cultural phenomenon... And things, a lot of the things we see here in the states tend to be pretty crazy. There is so much of a personality cult and debate about so many silly things going on here. And I think if you check the message boards at thepowercast.com or even the previous episodes where we've had uh, one or two people involved in that debate, don't you think? In all this, really makes it all that much more difficult to get to the bottom of this because so many people are out for their own thing they're out for their own glory or just to start a fight it just makes everything so messy doesn't it
6: it does and there's no question that the ufo phenomenon ufology itself tends to shoot itself in the foot through some of this where uh, there are individuals who uh... Uh, may have some sort of motivations that uh, are not the best for the phenomenon, and uh, I tend to concentrate on the cases themselves. Investigating, I'm not afraid to call a spade a spade. If someone comes to me with a report and says I've seen such and such a thing moving in the sky, and I say, Well, you know, the Percy meteor shower was last night, and did you see that as well? That uh, may not be popular <laughs> in that circle, but uh, that's the reality. And I think uh, that your point that uh, sometimes you some craziness, some, some silliness going on. Uh, I think that's to be expected because of the way that ufology itself has been born. There is no institution where you can go for a bachelor's degree or master's degree right. in ufology. Anybody's certification is as good as anybody else's. That If I wanted to call myself an expert, UFO propulsion researcher, that would be fine because who's going to contest that? If I want to hang out my shingle as an abduction researcher, who's going to contest that? The, the point is that uh, it's how you're presented. Your uh, your credentials in some cases are uh, are immaterial because I've met individuals who are some of the finest investigators in, in uh, ufology who don't have uh, a college education. And at the same time, I've talked with people who have PhDs who might as well just go home and go to bed because their minds are already made up one way or another. I think it's important, and this is a big problem for the Witnesses themselves who may not know who to uh, talk with at all. They want to have someone listen to their stories and take them seriously, and they fall under some danger where they talk with somebody whose hidden agenda is to believe that the aliens are reptiles from the planet Zargon or something like that and, and can actually do more harm than good, and I really feel for the Witnesses who really don't know what to make of the UFO phenomenon and of ufology in general. In fact, there's some days when I don't know what to make of ufology in general.
1: Well, it gets crazier. You know, years ago, we kind of separated the scientific from the fantasy, you know, where, and I go back quite a few years, where you had the scientific UFO researcher, the camp that you were in, and then you had the crazies. And now there's been this merger, and there are people who seem to jump in and out of both camps, and you don't know what to think.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I had the advantage of uh, having uh, uh, J.L. Hynek as one of my mentors. Uh, he came up to uh, Canada uh, when he was working on expanding the Center for UFO Studies. I've had the opportunity of talking with him. I've known Stan Friedman for, heck, almost 30 years now. You know, these are the nuts and bolts researchers, but at the same time, I've, uh, you know, put my foot into the murky water of abduction phenomena simply because I'm curious as to what's going on, and I have a sincere desire to help people who believe it, but I've done it in a way that i think is respectful to the individuals that is you know working with clinical psychologists and uh, counselors At the same time, you know, my background is in astronomy. I was actually uh, president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada's Winnipeg Centre, and I understand the the problems involved. Uh, uh, I know Phil Plate of uh, bad astronomy has uh, poked his uh, accusing finger in my direction a number of times. But, you know, I know the, the astronomy, too. I know the likelihood of life out there. I know how far the stars are apart. I know that is, you know, according to our physics right now, very, very Difficult to get here from out there. But that's not to say that given uh, an advanced technology, it's not going to happen. And I think we have to uh, keep an open mind. In fact, one comment that uh, I've used recently is that uh, it's very important to have an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. And right now there's a lot of gray, mar- there's a lot of gray matter on the sidewalk, and you have to watch where you're stepping. Well, we,
1: we've been through the minefields, as David can tell you.
6: <laughs> exactly. Chris, do you do this full-time? No, this is uh, my hobby, uh, uh, my passion, I suppose. I mm-hmm. end up spending a lot more time on it uh, than uh, I should, but I'm a, a single dad raising a family, and uh, this is what I can do when I can. So uh, I'm, uh, I'd am like to spend more time on it, but, uh, you know, there are some limitations.
1: What about your kids here raising the family? Do they believe in UFOs? or are they looking at dad and saying, well, you know, he's nice, he he buys us nice presents for our (laughs) birthdays, but he's a little cuckoo?
6: Well, there's no question. They they tend to be a bit embarrassed when... uh When uh, I'm quoted uh, on the media or friends say that they uh, heard me on the radio or something like that. But then how many dads do that anyway?
1: (laughs) Well, most kids, I think they reach a certain age where their dads are always wrong anyway.
6: Exactly. And I'm absolutely perfect for that.
1: Coming back to all this evidence that you've amassed. Okay, so have you reached any conclusions or tentative conclusions? Is ET coming here and wanting to phone us? What's
6: going on? Well, what I can definitely state is that if there isn't a real physical phenomenon uh, behind the UFOs, there's at the very least a psychological and or a sociological phenomenon. And in any of those cases, it's worth studying scientifically. I think science is doing a disservice By not taking a closer look and a more serious look at uh, what people are reporting, what uh, people are seeing and uh, believing are UFOs, especially since the speculation regarding alien technology and whether they're uh, silver disc-shaped objects or triangular or they're from Zeta Reticuli or Cydonia or wherever. Because of all that, I think science should take a greater responsibility in, in trying to understand what it is that people are seeing. Now, as far as whether the aliens are coming here, I think it's very likely that technology-based civilization will advance quite significantly. Uh, and hopefully, if it doesn't blow itself up, and uh, we're crossing our fingers on this one. And toes also. And toes. And, then, and, uh, and whatever else, <laughs> I think it's very likely that they will expand throughout the universe. Uh, This other point that should be made is that, you know, we've only been sending radio signals or strong electromagnetic signals into space since basically World War II when we started beaming radar out there. And uh, that's only of a matter of about about 60, 70 years or so, and that would mean that uh, star systems uh, of the order of uh, 50 light years away that may have intelligent uh, technological life are just now realizing that we may be here. It's possible that they heard about us earlier, but uh, even given, um, you know, simple astronomical principles, uh, they may just be hearing about us now, and given the limitations on space travel, they could be dropping in any moment now. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You've entered another dimension.
2: You've entered the Paracast.
1: I hear the doorbell, just a moment, but I have to tell our listeners you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedny. We're talking to Chris Rutkowski. He's trained in astronomy, co-author with Jeff Dittman of the Canadian UFO Reports, The Best Cases Revealed. That is available on Amazon Books, by the way, and what I've done is I've put a link at the PowerCast.com website so you can go ahead and check out the book and place your order if you want. David, you got a few final questions before we let Chris
0: go? Well, yeah, actually, one of the things that we've discussed on the show in previous episodes, Chris, is that there is some possibility that this whole UFO phenomenon is perhaps not sourcing from, let's say, another planet, but perhaps is actually a manifestation of visitations from another dimension. And that's something that the more that I read about these topics and the more that I do research, I seem to find many things that would support that kind of a statement, certainly in terms of the idea of traveling between star systems, if you could do such a thing, that playing games with the time-space continuum is the way to do it. Do you think that, in the research you've done, what are, you, what are your thoughts about the idea that maybe these aren't from another planet, maybe these are from an alternate dimension, or possibly even from our future? I know that sounds kind of wacky, but what are your thoughts about that?
6: Well, I think that's um, those are all very good possibilities, and uh, you know, when it comes to these types of things, any speculation is as good as another. Whether um, you know we're looking at something coming from our future or our really distant past or from another dimension, and if you know, to a physicist, talking about things from another dimension tends not to have any uh, any factual reality because at this point we don't even have any idea what another dimension would look like. One of my favorite books, uh, growing growing up as a kid was flatland my mm-hmm. favorite tablet uh, in which uh, a sphere, uh, you know, from a third dimension, visit visit uh, a flat two-dimensional region, and you know, it was completely beyond uh, the flat creatures' um, concept what this would be. So, because we have no idea what uh, it would mean to have something come from another dimension, what it would look like, what it would seem like, it's very difficult to speculate in that regard. And, and uh, similarly with something coming from the far future or the distant past. Uh, and you know, if you set up uh, the, the scenario where altering one's past affects your future, would uh, uh, be very dangerous to do. And yet, you know, it's as possible as anything uh, else because we simply don't know. And I, I guess that's the ultimate. As a scientist, I don't have a problem saying I don't know. I, I can't explain the residual several percent of the UFO reports that we do have on hand. Um, I'm not prepared to say that these three to five percent, uh, the several dozen cases a year, represent alien visitation from a particular planet. I simply don't know. And that's completely valid because uh, we need more information, we need more data, we need more reports. And uh, without that, uh, ufology is going nowhere. Mm. Yeah.
1: Well, certainly when you have all these personality conflicts, it goes nowhere very fast. It's entertaining for everybody, and I enjoy being entertained, but sometimes I'm a little upset when we run into situations like that where people just want to get involved in flame wars or personal gratification, and they forget that something crazy is going on out there, and we want to understand it.
6: Exactly. And I mean, there are many individuals who they don't have websites where people send their UFO reports, but if the cases themselves are not getting investigated of what web- value are they so i think uh you know there's a a real problem there and uh ufology really has to uh, pull itself up by the bootstrap
1: let's hope that happens thank you very much chris rutkowski he's author with jeff ditman of a book called the canadian ufo reports best cases revealed and if you go to our website at theparacast.com you click on the link you'll be able to go to amazon books and place your order it's amazon selling it for like 15 dollars and change and to Get all this stuff, these golden cases in one book is just incredible. Chris, we very much appreciate that you're joining us on the PowerCast this evening, and we want you back again because all we've done is open the door, and there are lots more questions. Thanks for joining us on the PowerCast. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. A reminder, if you have a question or a comment about the PowerCast, send your message to news at thepowercast.com. News at thepowercast.com. Also, visit our website at thepowercast.com. Check out our online forums where the going gets rough, but the tough get tougher, or something like that. We'll be back next week
3: on The PowerCast. The PowerCast, with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, is a production of Making the Impossible, Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The PowerCast.